Judges, the 13th chapter. You know, the California redwood trees are truly one of the wonders of nature. They're colossal. The trees are skyscrapers. Their girth is gigantic. They are the kings of the forest. And nothing is as impressive, they say, as the falling of one of these redwoods. The cutters score the tree trunk. The saw moves back and forth. The cut deepens. Soon the tree begins to bend. It leans further and further from the cutters. Before long, you begin to hear the cracking of wood fibers. With each slice of the saw, the noise builds. Eventually, it swells to a roar. And finally, the tree begins to fall. And if you're underneath that tree, it seems as if the sky is falling. The trunk explodes along the cut line, and the tree comes crashing to the forest floor. It sounds like thunder. Tonight, I need to yell, Timber! For we are going to watch the falling of a redwood. Not a giant of a tree, but a giant of a man. Samson was huge. Not necessarily in physical stature, but in privilege, in power, and effectiveness for God. Samson was a Nazarite dedicated to God. He came from a godly home. He served in an important post. He was feared by his enemies. He was used by God in supernatural ways. Samson was God's strong man. He was a divine vigilante. He was a one-man wrecking crew. Samson was a redwood. And yet Samson fell. The saw slides back and forth. The slender score line around his heart begins to deepen. He leans. Finally, he cracks. And Samson falls. He falls hard. We've all met a Samson. A person who seemingly had it all. Beautiful spouse. Good job. Healthy kids. Godly reputation. Effective ministry, perhaps. And then one day... He crashes. A secret, sinister side gets exposed. A name gets muddied. A family is broken. Hearts are wounded. The cause of Christ takes another black eye. Perhaps Samson's example tonight will wake us all up, lest anyone ever stand over us and yell timber. Chapter 13. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. The Philistines actually hailed from Greece, and they settled in Cana around 1200 B.C. It seems they first attacked Egypt, but they were repelled, and thus they settled northward along the coast of Canaan. They knew how to smelt iron and forge weapons, And that knowledge made them a threatening neighbor to the Israelites. Now there was a certain man from Zorah. And Zorah was a city about 14 miles east of Jerusalem. Of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And of course, barrenness was the scourge of the ancient world. It was considered as a sign of God's curse. Nothing brought greater shame than for a woman to be barren. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children. 
but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And notice that he shall begin to deliver Israel. It's interesting, Samuel, uh, Samson, I'm sorry, never rallied the nation to battle against the Philistines. Unlike the other judges, Samson resisted the enemy alone. He always fought by himself. His struggles were more personal vendettas than national campaigns. Samson will begin Israel's revolt against the Philistines, but it will take Samuel later to rally the nation together and conquer the Philistines at Mizpah in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Now, Mrs. Manoah was promised a son, and she was called on to take a special vow, a lifelong vow. Her son was to be a Nazarite. And the word means to dedicate. The vow of the Nazarite was an act of special dedication to God. There were only three lifelong Nazarites in the scriptures. There was Samson, there was John the Baptist, and there was Samuel. The Nazarite's special act of devotion to God consisted of three elements. He was not to eat or drink the fruit of the vine. He was not to cut his hair. And he was not to touch anything that was dead. In other words, you would never find a Nazarite in a liquor store or a barber shop or in a funeral parlor. And understand, these are three places that get pretty heavy traffic, don't they? Drive by any new strip mall these days and it's likely to have a liquor store and a barber shop. And funeral homes are everywhere too. In fact, people are just dying to get in those places. People want a nip, a clip, and then they want to rest in peace, a rip. That's what makes the world go round. The nip, the clip, and the rip. They're into pleasure and appearance and immortality and pride. These are the antithesis of what God values. In fact, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 sums up the philosophy of this world. The lust of the flesh, <laughs> that's the nip. The lust of the eyes, that's the clip. And the pride of life, that's the rip. In other words, the world is into feeling great and looking great and being great. That's what the world is about. Well, the Nazarites sent a message that real life is more than a nip and a clip, and a rip. It's lived on a spiritual plane. That true fulfillment is found in the spiritual and in the eternal. Real joy isn't produced by distilled spirits, but by the Holy Spirit. Real beauty isn't found inside a barbershop, but it's inside the heart given to God. And every mortuary should remind us that the real meaning to life isn't found on this earth. There is a life to come. And real soul satisfaction is found in eternal pursuits. You see, the Nazarite was a walking billboard. He was an advertisement for godly values. He said to the people around him that real life is found in the spiritual, not in the physical. It's found in the internal, not the external. And it's found in the eternal, not the temporal. 
And the child born to Mrs. Manoah was to be a lifelong Nazarite. Verse 6. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose, and he followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life in his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, and basically he repeats what he already told Manoah's wife, which kind of brings up an interesting point. If God tells your wife something... That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to repeat it to you. You might just have to trust her, fellas. Of all that, I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you. And we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. In other words, I don't want anything to eat. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. In other words, I don't need your meal. But I will accept your sacrifice. You can offer to me a burnt offering. And of course, the only person worthy to accept sacrifices was God himself. Obviously, this is no ordinary angel. Here again, the messenger of God claims to be divine. And here is another clear case where the angel of the Lord is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Manoah was hoping for some additional new information about his son, but instead of discussing the boy, he learns the truth about his supernatural visitor. Verse 17, Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And you remember Isaiah 9, verse 6, we quoted at Christmas time. There Jesus is referred to prophetically as wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus' name is wonderful. You know, so often, like Manoah, We pray for more information about God's plan. But what we really need is a revelation of God's person. You know, rather than more details about the mission he's given us, we need to be clear, a clear vision of the Messiah who's given us that mission. In other words, we need to see Jesus, not necessarily the plan. This is how the angel handles Manoah. He talks about himself. He reveals himself to Manoah, not necessarily details about his son. Well, finally, Manoah offers the burnt offering. 
So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he, the angel of the Lord, did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Talk about going up in smoke. That's what happened. Hey, here are some real July 4th fireworks. The angel ascends in the flame of the sacrifice. Just a word here to married couples. If you're looking for a spark, a flame to reignite your marriage, try this. Try dedicating yourselves. Try giving your marriage to God as a sacrifice. Light a flame to it, if you will. And here's what will happen. Jesus will join you in your flame. And he will bring back some love and passion and commitment to that marriage. Well, when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. He obviously feared God. In John 1 verse 18, Jesus said, No one has seen God at any time. No mortal is worthy to look on God and live. And yet Manoah knew that in seeing God's pre-incarnate son, he had actually seen God himself. And now he is scribbling down his last will and testament just in case God decides to strike him dead. But his wife said to him, and leave it to a wife to settle down an anxious husband with some common sense. But she said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. Makes sense. And so the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, which, by the way, means Sonny. Sonny. And Sonny will provide the Philistines many dark and stormy nights. <laughs> And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. Notice when the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon Samson's life. It was a discernible, definable moment in a specific place. Mahanadan, which means the camp of Dan. Perhaps it was at middle school camp, or maybe kids camp, or maybe high school camp. But Samson was at Mahane Dan. He was at camp when the Holy Spirit began to move upon him. Between Zorah and Eshtol, God's Spirit filled Samson and baptized him with power. You see, until that point, Samson was just your typical Jewish kid. But Mahanadan, the Spirit moved on him in a new way, in a powerful way. It wasn't something that gradually dawned on him. It wasn't something that just slowly drew him in. It wasn't something that developed through osmosis. No, this was a specific turning point when the Spirit of God came upon him and he experienced God in a brand new way. You know, I still remember the time, the place when the Holy Spirit began to move in my life. I still remember the occasions, the first times I was baptized 
with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had been in me for some time, but there came a point when His power came upon me. And this can happen to you. Just this morning, I had a young man come up and we prayed together for him to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And God began to move on him in a new way. If you've never been to Mahanadan in your life, ask God to take you there. He can begin a new work in you tonight. Well, chapter 14 begins. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. And so he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Note the first recorded words to come from Samson's mouth. This is the reason the redwood falls. His first recorded words, I have seen a woman. Samson goes to Timnah and he sees a Philistine filly. He likes her looks. He wants her for his wife. He insists that his parents arrange the marriage. Samson doesn't care that she's a Gentile and that God forbids Hebrews to marry Gentiles. All Samson cares about is satisfying his sexual desires. He wants the girl. You see, this was Samson's problem in a nutshell. He may or may not have been an exerciser, but he was definitely a womanizer. Samson's problem was that he liked to chase skirts. He had an eye for the ladies. Samson could slay a thousand Philistines, but not his own libido. You might say Samson was a he-man with a she-problem. Did you know the Illinois Department of Natural Resources reports that 17,000 deer are struck by motorists every year on state roads. And the peak season for roadkill is late November because that's the season when the bucks like to mate. The state wildlife director makes this statement. The deer are concentrating almost exclusively on reproductive activities and are a lot less wary than they normally would be. That's Samson's problem. He was always concentrating on reproductive activities. Sex was his Achilles heel. This is why we need convictions. Despite what the media tells us, life is more than sex. Oh, sure, sex is pleasurable, but the pleasure is physical and fleeting, whereas our deepest needs are spiritual. And always remember, physical pleasure can never satisfy a spiritual need, never. You see, the key to a lasting, permanent fulfillment is not physical intimacy with another person, but spiritual intimacy with God. Well, verse 3 tells us, Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? They knew this was a violation of God's word. And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me. Oh, get her for me. She pleases me. That's the impression you get about him. I mean, the guy was all about his own desires. That's all he cared about. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. And here's the strange thing. 
I'm sure that God never approved of Samson marrying a Philistine, but he was about to use Samson's selfishness for his own glory. For God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Wait a minute, Samson. You're a Nazarite. You're not supposed to be hanging out in vineyards. Remember your vow? Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. Samson's on the road to Timnah. The sea is sweetie. When suddenly this man-eating lion comes out of the bushes and attacks him. Verse 6. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But notice this. He did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Now, if God had done this miracle for you or me, we would stand on the lion's carcass. You know, we'd be standing there with one foot up on the lion, you know, kind of standing there like this. And he had somebody take a photo of us, and we'd post it on the Internet. That's exactly what we'd do. We'd send the photo into Calvary Chapel magazine so they could publish it and put our name underneath it. To Samson's credit, God did this great work. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, but he took no glory for what had happened. Then he went down and he talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. It was lust at first sight. This relationship develops. After some time when he had returned to her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. The honey made for a nice snack. And the whole picture became the inspiration for a riddle that we're going to get to in a moment. But notice this. Long before his infamous haircut, Samson broke his vow to God. He broke it first by going to those vineyards, by touching the fruit of the vine. He broke it the second time by touching something that was dead, that dead lion. He broke his vow long before the cutting of his hair. Verse 9, he took some of it in his hands and he went along eating. Now when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. Samson threw himself a bachelor's party. Now the Hebrew word translated feast means drinking bout or drinking celebration. And knowing what kind of guy Samson was, it's hard to imagine that he was content with soda pops. He was probably hitting the wine pretty heavy. Again, violating his vow, the first part of his vow, touching the fruit of the vine. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. If you've got to have a party, you've got to have somebody with you. So they brought 30 guys. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. Now, Samson's a little sauced here. He's been hitting his wine, and he proposes a friendly wager. He's going to stump them with a riddle and get him 30 new suits from the men's warehouse. But if you cannot explain it to me, 
Then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. And out of the strong came something sweet. Now for three days they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us or else we will burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that that not so? I mean, the Philistines don't want to lose 30 changes of raiment, and so they threaten Samson's bride. Either get us the riddle, the solution to the riddle, or we're going to burn you in your father's house to the ground. Then Samson's wife wept on him. Has your wife ever wept on you? I mean, she just started the sobbing act, you know. Started with the tears. That's how my wife gets out of those speeding tickets. She just knows how to turn on the tears. And so she, Mrs. You know, this girl from Timna, she starts crying. And this beautiful Philistine babe, she's a manipulator. And she makes him feel guilty. And she says to him, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. Sonny, honey, you left me out of your game. If you really love me, you'll whisper to me the answer to that riddle. And he said to her, look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother. So should I explain it to you? Now she had wept on him the seven days while the feast lasted. I mean, she had to put up with this for seven days. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. You know, it's interesting. Samson could kill a lion with his bare hands. He could slay a band of Philistines, but he lacked the strength to say no to a woman. This was his weakness. And so the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? They answered the riddle. And immediately, Samson smells a rat. He knows he's been double-crossed. And in verse 18, Samson shows off his way with words. And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Boy, had a way with words. (laughs) Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. And he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. Samson gave them the clothes, but he took them off the backs of dead Philistines. Hey, when we want clothes, we go to the mall. Samson went to the brawl. He mauled the Philistines. He took their clothes and paid off his bet. And so his anger was aroused and he went back to his father's house. Well, his wife's betrayal, it upset him. I mean, he was, he was hurt. And so he goes home now to sort out his feelings. In the meantime, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Oh, no. Talk about adding insult to injury. 
<laughs> These Philistines better brace themselves. When Samson finds out what his father-in-law's done, he's not going to like it. Chapter 15. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, which was oh, late May, early June, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. Now, a young goat was the Hebrew equivalent at that time of a dozen roses and a box of candy. <laughs> he's thought this over now, and he's concluded that he really does love his bride, and he's going to forgive her for her act of betrayal, and so he's coming to her to make up. And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. He tries to pawn off the baby sister on Samson. Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. In other words, it's payback time. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes. The Philistines took Samson's foxy woman from him. And now he's going to take 300 of their foxes. And he took torches. And he turned the foxes tail to tail. And he put a torch between each pair of tails. Now when he had set the torches on fire. And you know what a fox does when its tail's on fire? Man, it runs. Let, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines. And burned up both the shocks and the standing grain. As well as the vineyards. And the olive grows. Their whole harvest was devastated. Verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. They torched Samson's in-laws. The love of his life dies in the flames. You could say Samson and the Philistines were fighting fire with fire. Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. And so he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Edom. He retreated to the borders of Israel. Edom was south of Bethlehem. But notice the phrase, he attacked them hip and thigh. This might have been a wrestling term, believe it or not. In other words, he attacked them hip and thigh. In other words, he, he disjointed their leg. He pulled their, their thigh out from their hip, their hip socket. He dismembered them, in other words. He, he thoroughly pulled apart their hip and thigh. Or, or it could have just meant he stomped them. I mean, he thoroughly trounced the Philistines. Either way, it was pretty brutal. Verse 9. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. In other words, the Philistines come to arrest Samson. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So they answered, we haven't come up against you, you know, but we have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? They were a bunch of wimps themselves, weren't they? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. 
But they said to him, we have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Now, you know, you really start to feel sorry for Samson. His newlywed wife betrays him. Then she's lost in a fire. Now his fellow countrymen come wanting to arrest him and extradite him and turn him over to the enemy. He's had a hard few weeks. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. And so they spoke to him saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And these new ropes, they were new ropes. They were strong ropes. They were unbreakable ropes. Now when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Oh, you can hear him hooping and hollering. I mean, they saw the ropes around his hands. They, they saw that he was offering no resistance. They thought they had him. But then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned in the fire. Suddenly the ropes just flaked away and crumbled. Like when you take that poker and you hit the last piece of wood in a fire that's almost gone, and the thing just kind of crumbles and flakes into pieces. Suddenly those ropes just flaked off of his hands, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. Verse 15, And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. A thousand men were too few. Twenty thousand men would have been too few. For the Spirit of God fought for Samson. Now I picture a posse bringing Samson through a narrow canyon. There are rock walls on, on all sides. There's slight openings around him. And then suddenly he breaks free from his bonds. And the Philistine soldiers try to capture him. And in order to do so, to get into this narrow place where he's at, they start coming in in small bands of two or three. They try to wiggle through these narrow passages. And it allows Samson to pick them off one or two at a time. And over the course of hours, he kills a thousand Philistines. Verse 16. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. The phrase heaps upon heaps is a word play. In the Hebrew, the word resembles donkey. And so Samson is in essence mocking the Philistines. He's saying donkeys were slain with a donkey's jawbone. That's what he's saying. You might say Samson is boasting and you might even say he's trash-talking a little bit. The Jewish historian Josephus, he says that this conquest over the Philistines went to Samson's head. That He became proud. He thought he had become invincible. Josephus says that verse 16 was really just a small portion of a much longer victory song or a boasting song that Samson sang. Apparently, Samson was jawing about the jawbone. Josephus puts it this way. Samson said that this did not come to pass by the assistance of God, but that his success was ascribed to his own courage. Proving that there were actually two jawbones of a donkey at work in this story. And so it was... When he had finished speaking, implying that he had spoken for a long time, this guy was just trash talking. 
you know, yipping and hooting and howling and bragging about himself and all, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and he called that place Ramoth-Lehi. And the name of the place Ramoth-Lehi means jawbone heights. Now, let me read to you Josephus' comments in their entirety because they explain what happens next. Upon this slaughter, Samson was too proud of what he had performed and said that this did not come to pass by the assistance of God, but that his success was to be ascribed to his own courage and vaunted himself, that it was out of a dread for him that some of his enemies fell, and the rest ran away upon his use of the jawbone. But when a great thirst came upon him, he considered that human courage is nothing and bear his testimony that all is to be ascribed to God. And in verse 18, Samson learns his lesson, for then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. And so God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name in Hakori, which means spring of the caller, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Chapter 16. Then Samson went to Gaza, a major Philistine city. And he saw a harlot there, and he went into her. And he must have tried to slip in undercover, but there's a leak. For when the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. The Gaza SWAT team locked down the city gates and they set a trap for Samson. Now remember, ancient gates were serious fortifications. They were deeply embedded in the ground. They were thick and strong and heavy. They were able to resist an entire army. Verse 2, they were quiet all night saying, in the morning when it is daylight, we will kill him. This was the Philistine plan. Samson had a plan of his own. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gate posts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron, which was some distance. Imagine the Philistines camped around the gates expecting to pounce on Samson at daybreak. Suddenly around midnight, Samson is ripping these gates out of the ground and he uses the iron bars to bulldoze over the Philistines who oppose him. Trust me, it was a huge embarrassment for the Gaza police department. And it was proof that not even city gates, strong fortifications, can stop a man empowered by the Spirit of God. Hey, a single man full of the Holy Spirit can defeat an entire army. And yet the source of his power was also a problem. For he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is why Samson's life was such an enigma. Samson was a walking contradiction. Samson is familiar with God's power, but he is a stranger to God's purity. 
Here is a man who spends the night with a hooker, no less. He walks out of a brothel, not a chapel. And God uses him to do the miraculous, to win a great victory. How can this be? Perhaps nobody in the scriptures demonstrates as much a contradiction between his personal life and his public ministry as does Samson. How can a man be used so powerfully by God while being so nonchalant about obedience to God? There can be only one answer. It's God's mercy. God does use imperfect vessels. He supplies his servants on-the-job training. He fixes us on the fly. He never waits till we're perfect before he uses us. He works in us and on us and through us all at the same time. But don't make the wrong assumptions. Just because God continues to use you doesn't mean he approves of everything you do. And this is where pastors get into problems. They get up, they preach sermons. People are saved. They come to know Christ all the time. There's a secret sin in his life. And they assume that God doesn't care, that God's overlooking that. Don't make that mistake. It's not true. God was extremely concerned with Samson's sin. In fact, we see in chapter 16 that there comes a point when enough is enough. Samson crosses a line. He goes too far and the power he's come to expect and believes will always be there will suddenly be gone. The life of Samson teaches us that there is a definite point. There is a line that you cross and God says enough. He withdraws his blessing. He puts you on the shelf. The giver of the great commission puts you out of commission if you cross that line. And here's the added problem. You don't really know where God draws that line until it's been crossed. We'll find later Samson jumps up thinking the Spirit of God is going to be upon him like always, and he's not. Chapter 16 marks Samson's sad, pathetic end. Verse 4. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Zorek, whose name was Delilah. Notice Samson's vice led him to a valley. Not just geographically, but spiritually as well. Even as God used Samson, each time he yielded to temptation, the condition of his heart grew worse and worse. Notice the deterioration here. The first time he lusts for a woman... At least he tries to do the honorable thing. He goes down to Timnah and he marries her. The second time he lusts after a woman, he settles for a one-night stand. But it's done in secret and it's not really permanent. He still, though, senses some shame, obviously. But the third time, he throws away all restraint. He doesn't care about what anybody else thinks. He shacks up with Delilah in an open act of defiance. I detect a progression here, a seedy slide downward. Samson has a lust problem that he never turns from, that he never deals with. Here's what he does with this lust problem. He first tries to legitimize it. He gets married. He second tries to privatize it. He hides it. He, he, He keeps it in a harlot's house. But finally... He just secularizes it. He just secularizes his old outlook. 
He gives up the fight for virtue. He just capitulates and gives in to sin. You know, he just decides he can't change. And so he goes down and he shacks up with Delilah. Samson becomes brazen and shameless. You see, it is a slippery slope down to the edge of the cliff. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, there were five lords of the Philistines. There were five chief cities of the Philistines. And so that's an offer of 5,500 pieces of silver. Delilah is going to get big bucks if she can deliver to the Philistines the secret of his strength. You know, which brings up an interesting point. If Samson had been a muscular person, if he had had this real muscular physique like he's often pictured, this beefcake, you know, this buff, you know, hunk of a guy, muscle-bound brute, Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of guy, you know, why would you want to know the secret of his strength? I mean, it's obvious the guy's on steroids. This is why I believe that Samson had a slight build. He may even have been the 98-pound weakling, the peep squeak. I don't think there was a ripple in Samson's shirt. I really don't. I think he was probably a, a skinny, scrawny little guy. But when God's Spirit came upon him, my, he exuded with superhuman strength. This is why they wanted to know the secret of his strength. Verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Take Josh's guitar strings off. Bind him up. And at first, Samson just sort of plays with Delilah. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. I mean, it just popped right off of him. And so the secret of his strength was not known. Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, Look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me with what you may be bound with. And so he said to her, If they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men were lying in wait, staying in the room. But he broke them off his arms like a thread. Again, Samson is playing a game, but it never dawns on him that Delilah's not playing and God isn't playing. See, it never dawns on some guys that keep flirting with with the seedy side that God isn't playing here. Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, well, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of a loom. And notice, he's getting real close to the secret of his strength. You see, his long hair was the last remnant 
of the vow that he had taken to God, the vow of the Nazarite. It was the only thing left that that showed his devotion to God, his long hair. And now he's brought that into the equation. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, Oh, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. Again, she failed to pry away his secret. Verse 15. Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. Delilah is desperate. And she pulls out the old line. If you only love me, if you really love me, how many men and women have thrown away their virginity and their purity and their integrity because of that very statement? If you really love me. Hey, if you really love someone... You won't ask them to disobey God. If you really love the person you're asking or who's asking you, you'll say no to them. Because if you really love them, you'll insist on God's best for them and for you. And yet embedded in Delilah's statement was the ultimate issue for Samson. She questioned him, how can you say I love you? When your heart is not with me. And she was really asking Samson, where is your heart? And this was what God was asking him too. Understand for a while, despite Samson's failures, his heart still belonged to God. Despite the fact that he had taken the fruit of the vine, despite the fact he had touched something that was dead, despite the fact that he had made compromises and there were moments of temptation where he had yielded, despite that, deep in his heart, he still wanted to please God. And yet repeated compromise takes its toll. Did you hear that, guys? Repeated compromise takes its toll. It chips away at the will. It erodes your desire and your devotion until eventually Samson no longer cares. He no longer cares about his hair. The last remaining bit of his devotion to God. He no longer cares about that. Where is your heart, Samson? God used to have your heart, even through your failures and your dis... God used to have your heart, but he no longer has your heart. His heart used to belong to God, but now in the valley of Zorik, it obviously belongs to a girl. For verse 16 is an awful verse. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death that he told her all his heart. He gave his heart to the girl, not to God. And he said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. This was the one part of his vow that he had kept. His long hair was the last tie between him and God. It was the last token that Samson could have given to prove that he truly cared about pleasing God and following God. As long as there was a desire for godliness, as long as as he had that hair, even though he was weak, even though he, he failed, even though he... 
fell on his face from time to time. As long as there was that one desire, his heart was with God. God would forgive his weakness. But once that desire left, once Samson no longer cared, the power departed. When Delilah saw that he told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. She knew. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him. That goes to show you how much Delilah really loved him. And his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. In one sense, we can say that a single woman did what a thousand Philistines couldn't. Bring down Samson. But it wasn't just Delilah. It was a lifestyle. Listen to me, guys. It was a lifestyle that had built up over years. It was a tolerance for sin. It was an accommodation to a sin that Samson should have never allowed. It was a cavalier attitude toward a serious problem. Samson was a man who kept playing with a poisonous snake until eventually it reached up and it bit him. Samson's life teaches us that sin doesn't just one day produce an unannounced failure. No, it saps the life out of our commitment to God. It erodes us and deteriorates us over time. It diminishes our desire for God until one day we wake up and we don't care anymore. Well, the Philistines immediately began to torture the man who had tortured them for 20 years. Verse 21, Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. They took a hot iron and they poked out Samson's eyes. And then they paraded him through the temple of Dagon. And they gave credit to their God for delivering their enemy into their hands. How it had to have broken his heart to know that he had become a trophy for an empty idol. And isn't it ironic? They plucked out Samson's eyes. Samson's problem his whole life long had been his wandering eyes. And in the end, they poked out his eyes. I guess you could say that Samson had to become blind for him to really see. Verse 22 makes what seems to be a passing comment, but in reality it brings great hope. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. In other words... A fresh commitment was still possible, Samson. Samson had been shelved, but the shelf doesn't have to be permanent. Your hair is starting to grow again, Samson. You can renew your commitment to God. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. One day Samson is in the temple of Dagon, the fish god. He becomes the object of the Philistines' jeers and their insults. 
He's drawn quite a crowd here, believe it or not. And so it happened when their hearts were merry and they said, call for Samson that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he performed for them. On this day, the place was full of spite. Most everyone in attendance had had a relative that Samson had killed. I mean, they hated him with a vengeance. And they stationed him between two pillars, two main supporting posts there within the temple of Dagon. Verse 26. Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof, watching while Samson performed. There are 3,000 on the roof. That doesn't include those that had seats. Then Samson called to the Lord. He prayed his final prayer, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson one final time. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. And then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might. And imagine being inside of that structure or being on the roof. Imagine the beams and the seats, they start to wobble and shake. And then the whole place collapses like a house of cards. We're told and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. And what an epithet, verse 30. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. You might say Samson brought the house down. He went out with a bang. His greatest victory was his last. Notice this. His ultimate victory came as a result of his own death. And I hope you understand that is true of each one of us. That could be said for all of us. It is only when we die to our own selfishness and our own pride and our own ego and sacrifice everything we have to Jesus that we really begin to live. It's true of all of us. Our ultimate victory comes as the result of our own death. Once Samson lost his eyes... He could see what life was really all about. Women, pleasure no longer mattered. In the end, all Samson wanted was to experience the power of God, to bring glory to God, even if it cost him his life. How desperate are you to know God tonight? Do you want to know the power of God in your life more than life itself? Hey, even if you've been on the shelf, even if God has said enough to you, even if your hair has been shaved and your eyes have been poked out, your hair will grow again. Even if you've been on the shelf, God can use you again if you'll open up your heart and if you'll recommit your life to Jesus Christ.
Verse 31. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ishtol in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years.